episode 111 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 1st of February 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan, Aardvark, Graham, Hello, and Will. Hello. What the hell are you on about, Phelan? Oh, people who know will know. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, on this episode, we're going to be covering a bit of your feedback, and uh, we've got some less timely news to discuss. But first, I just want to give you a pro tip, and that is that with a nine quid USB HDMI capture device and an app from the Google Play Store and also uh, an adapter to make micro USB into USB-A, you can turn an old Android tablet into a portable HDMI screen for a Raspberry Pi, for example. That sounds really interesting. It sounds like something really interesting you could have told me before I went to trouble of buying one off the Pi Hut, getting sent the wrong one, having to get it sent back and then have to worry that it's going to get extra tax and customs on it, but somehow manage to escape it. Well, this comes from an article on Tom's Hardware written by Les Pounder just before Christmas, and he's got good instructions there. But yeah, the bottom line is you just need this Play Store app. And yeah, I can't believe that I never thought to do this. The Play Store app is USB camera standard. There's probably other ways to do it. There might be a way to do it from F-Droid, but I don't know. But I tried it on a Nexus 9 as well as a Nexus 7, and it works perfectly, and it solved my problem. In retrospect, I could have solved this problem another way, but for some reason, the Raspberry Pi does not like my 1440p monitor anymore. And if you try and boot it, it just gets this weird, like, scrambled screen. But it's fine at 1080p. So what I can do is quickly boot it with the portable setup that I've got now, make sure it's on 1080p and then plug it into the proper screen and it works fine. I could do that. It dawned on me afterwards by just changing the config file to force it to be 1080p. But that's not as fun, is it? And so now, yeah, if you've got a situation, you could potentially run a Pi off battery and have a screen out in the field somewhere. It's not a touchscreen, obviously, but you need a keyboard and mouse and everything. But still having a battery-powered screen is pretty sweet. If you do want a touchscreen, get the one I got from Pi Hut. It's very good. Is that the official one? No, I don't think it's the actual official one, but um, it's a it's a really good one. It comes in a, a sort of a partial case. There's a mounting thing in the back where you can stick a Pi in the back if you want to have one there. But I have this for my various Pies are in the house that are wired in to sensors that I can't move the damn thing. So when they invariably stop working, I have to go and find out why. Yeah, well, the beauty of this is that, of course, you can use it with a laptop or a desktop or a PlayStation or anything that's got HDMI. Yeah, pretty sweet. When the hell did USB HDMI capture devices start costing less than 10 quid? I know, it's mad, isn't it? I mean, it's not the best quality, and I think it's only 30 frames a second, and you know, you're not necessarily going to be using it to be a Twitch streamer or whatever. But for basic stuff like this, where you just need to be able to see what's on the screen, it's absolutely perfect. So yeah, there'll be links to all that in the show notes anyway. Just thought uh, someone else might benefit from that. So what is probably a few weeks ago now, as you're listening to this, we had an update on Blue Sky, which is Twitter's decentralized social networking effort, as The Verge puts it. Now, this was just a few tweets, and I can't believe that in over a year, this is what they've come up with. Because Jack Dorsey was talking about Twitter just becoming a client that connects to an open protocol. And he was talking a lot of the talk, but he put together this team that seemingly has turned into a tea-drinking and cake-eating boondoggle. (laughs) What have they been doing? 
this is such an easy problem to solve, relatively speaking. And I just, I don't understand. They've put together like a, a document that is um, getting a load of different people together and talk about it. And one of the replies to the tweet announcing this was just amazing. It was from Raphael Lollis. I think that's how he said it. He said, one year of work for nothing but threads with feel-good words. It's unbelievable how Silicon Valley looks like the worst bureaucracy when change the world means destroying their golden geese and giving freedom to the people. Need a lead? I can do this job with two tweets. <laughs> he says, number one, reinstate RSS. Make it easy for people to follow things without any algorithmic intervention on their clients and letting them share content however they want. Preach. And number two, adopt ActivityPub, at least the outbox. Make it easy for people already on other services like Mastodon and what's Pleroma and PixelFed to follow those people on Twitter directly. This is a project for a two-pizza to two-in-one sprint. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's not wrong, is he? No. It's very straightforward. I don't understand what all of this bollocks is about like when okay that's perhaps a little bit um you know hyperbole to say a two-piece sprint or whatever but like it doesn't take this long surely to just implement that stuff and this is just jack dorsey paying lip service to the idea of an open protocol well it must have been fairly top secret because i didn't even know it existed I swear we talked about it at the time. Uh, Maybe I fell asleep. Mm. (laughs) Well, that's just how inconsequential it's been and how it's taken all this time for still nothing, still just empty words. It's almost like they don't really care. Yeah, or they're squatting on the idea so that it maybe stops other people trying to do the same thing. Twitter could have changed the world in a very positive way when it started. And at the time, its API was really open and it had the RSS and you could do all kinds of things with it. Mm. Um, But over the years, it's closed almost every avenue of collaboration and openness, making it basically a a walled garden. And, you know, almost every search you have to do there, you need to log in. Um, it's It's still useful and serves an important purpose, but it's not what... I was excited by Twitter in 2007. But they could make it compatible with Mastodon, you would imagine. And so you could interact with people. Like on Mastodon, you have to put at the server or whatever. It could just be, you know, Jorison at twitter.com or whatever. And people could talk to me. You know, I could talk to them via Twitter to Mastodon if Twitter wanted to do this. But they just don't seem serious about being open and decentralized. Do you not end up in a situation where... What was the one prior to Mastodon? Identica. Identica, that's it. Thank you. Where people would have one account on one server, but they'd also have a mirror account on Twitter. But they would only get a part of the traffic. So you know, but people shouting at other across this chasm and then them ignoring it on the far side and having this random other conversation and then complaining about, oh, we've already discussed this. I don't know why you're bringing this back up again. Just anything that's distributed is going to end up in a sort of quagmire of follow-ups and different servers and traffic not getting shipped through. I don't think it's as easy as you make out. I mean, there's a reason why nobody's done it, but there's also a reason why nobody's monetized it that way. So there's probably no incentive to do it because you're not going to make money out of that system. Like if you look at any of the systems that are decentralized, they're sort of funded by either um, not-for-profits or it's, you know, it's a lot of volunteer work that's actually maintaining and running the system. So, like, as that tweet says, you know, they're trying to shoot their own golden goose. 
Yeah, because Twitter really struggled to monetize the business, especially when it was more open. So if it just becomes a client to a decentralized network, then that does feel like it's going to be harder to monetize for them. But I do think it's an area still with a huge amount of potential if it's done properly. And I suppose the more mistakes that Twitter makes, the more likely it, it, it is that something will come along and provide a better alternative. I mean, I can't manage my Twitter feeds anymore. You know, I, I use TweetDeck. There's like a thousand messages a minute, most of it filled with hate. It's kind of irrelevant for a lot of things other than very specific cases, and it's not the right UI for that. I think you're just doing it wrong. You're following too many people and do not got it on the uh, show newest tweets first. You've got it on the algorithmic mode or whatever. Every hour I get like seven tweets from a series of Waterboy monitoring systems and lighthouses. <laughs> That's how to do it properly. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have one of my columns as Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they've got that done now. That's over and done with, Graham. Yes, definitely done. Yeah, just don't try and take any ham sandwiches over to the continent and you'll be fine. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. I recently moved our website over to Linode, and I'm really happy with it. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's talk about Debian. This is something that caught my eye. There was a post on the Debian developer mailing list by someone called Dan Powell, who was moaning about the fact that he'd gone to the Debian homepage, clicked download, tried to install it on his laptop and his Wi-Fi didn't work. And that created a whole debate about whether Debian should facilitate people using non-free software or should they completely stick to free software. And I wanted to know what you lot thought about this. Should Debian just stick to being free software only and just promote that at the cost of actually being used and installed by people? Or should they be a little bit more pragmatic about it and maybe say, look, this is what we suggest, totally free software. But look, if you have problems with that, here's the non-free ISO and maybe explain a little bit about what that means. I kind of feel like this problem was solved 17 years ago when Ubuntu came along for exactly this purpose. So if Debian, rightly or wrongly, have stuck to their guns and said, no, we are going to be you know, all free software all the time and haven't learned from the relative success of Ubuntu over these years, then they're never going to learn. So... I think Ubuntu serves this purpose perfectly. And perhaps the time has come for Debian to say, if you don't like what we do with all free software, go get Ubuntu. But Debian is a community project, whereas Ubuntu is backed by a company. And I'm not saying that either of those is better, but some people would prefer a community project and some people would prefer a company-backed project. And if you want to use a community project but you actually want to be able to install it on a laptop, then 
surely Debian should do what I've suggested and, and be a bit more open about the fact that you can use it with some non-free software. I, I don't know. I think it's this is Debian's soul, you know, and it's open source software. I don't want to say other people can fork the distro and do their own thing, but that is that that is kind of Debian's thing. And I don't really expect them to have to change, even though th- th- I think they're probably getting a surge of popularity, which is what's creating some of these problems, but it's always been the same. I think it's an interesting solution that one of the guys suggested where he said, we have processors and they have firmware. Um, why couldn't this just be a different type of firmware? And I mean, yeah, it's kind of the same point, really, because I mean, in order to get your hardware working, you need the firmware for it. I mean, not necessarily true, but there's a lot of people out there with ropey Windows only hardware that, you know, you're kind of stuck if you've got it. It's a definitely tricky one. But if people's first impression of Debian, which is pushing free software, I mean, Graham, you said open source, but Debian to me seems much more on the free software side of things. But if that's what people's first impression is, that it's shit and it doesn't work, then surely that is worse than them at least giving you the option to have a bit of non-free software and have mostly free software. I mean, yes, Will, your point makes sense. That is basically what Ubuntu is. But I just feel that if Debian is going to attract more users and and bang the drum for software freedom and everything that goes along with that, they need some actual users. And the user base will only shrink if it's too hard to use. But maybe I'm just being naive and basically no one uses it on the desktop, but loads of people run it on their servers. I think it depends on the desktop you run it on. I mean, I think if you go out and buy the likes of hardware that has you know, somewhat open drivers or support driver chipsets, etc. You're not going to end up in a situation where you've got like the Broadcom chipsets that, you know, only work if they've got that particular blob, whatever, to get going. And I think it's good that there is somebody like Debian who's standing there, you know, they're not quite the Triscale level of freedom only, but, you know, it, it, there is the ability to get there. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't say this is a, a beginner user intro to Linux. I mean, if you're going there for that, you've already gone wrong horribly along the way. You know, I think there is more handholdy sort of ways of doing this. But maybe Debian could be the right choice for a beginner. Is that not the argument here, that if you know what you're doing with Linux and you've used Ubuntu and Fedora and, you know, a lot of other distros, then you can navigate your way around Debian and be fine with it. But what if it, it was people's first distro? Like, wouldn't that be a good thing? But what has changed in the last, let's say, 20 years that means that a beginner today cannot use Google to find out how to install Debian with restricted firmware versus before when you didn't even have Google, probably, but people still managed to use it? What is the problem that we're trying to solve that means that people either choose not to or can't be bothered or whatever other reason to put in a bit more effort. Like I I don't see why this is a problem now when it wasn't before. It's a fair point. Maybe in the last 20 years, people have become less patient and more used to plug and play, turn on the iPad, click the app. It's those damn millennials again, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah, and the, the Gen Z, Z, whatever. Yeah, it's the, blame it on the young people. No, but like things have changed. It was 
people used to have towers back then, you know. Uh, fucking still have one, sure. <laughs> well, well, so do I, but, you know, that was the the thing. That was a computer then. Now if you say a computer to people, they think laptop or increasingly a tablet or whatever. Times have changed and Debian has not is the bottom line. I'd argue that Linux has not, quite frankly. Well, yes, indeed. And maybe stuff like that Jing OS uh, actually trying to make things change and go with the times. Well, let us know what you think, dear listener. Should Debian just keep being them or should they change and make it a bit easier for people to use it? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code late night Linux to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code late night Linux. That's automation.link and the code late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who's supporting us with PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated, especially as we've gone weekly. I keep saying that. Eventually, it just will have been going weekly long enough for me to not say it. So uh, anyway, if you want to help us out, go to latenightlinux.com slash support and you'll find a link there to the Patreon. Remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Quick reminder, The next Mumble get-together will be on the 12th of February at 10 p.m. Details at latenightlinux.com slash mumble. That's Friday night UK time. Which brings me to Fostalk Live. Now, I have officially announced that Fostalk Live 2021 is not happening in person. And I went on a little bit of a rant about the Tories in my post about that. I'll link that in the show notes. Graham immediately clicks on link to see that in Duck. (laughs) Now, I wanted to get all of your opinion on what I propose instead. I mean, I take it you all agree that this is the right call. Like by June, July, shit's still going to be fucking horrendous and it's just not practical to do it, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if we're going to do something, we have to do it online. Now, there, there are a lot of questions then. If it's online, then we can open it up to not just the people who can get to London, essentially whether they are from the UK or the EU, like you, Phelan, and uh, Linux lads and stuff. The big question I have is video versus audio. Audio is a million times easier, but everyone wants to do video these days. So I want to do audio only, but I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback for that. So push back if you're going to. Not from me, you won't. You think audio only is feasible for this then? I think it makes sense because, I mean... A, for a start, I don't have a camera on my desktop PC. And I don't have to get my laptop out. And I'll have to wear clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have to get shaved or showered or something. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. I think I think it would be good with video. I think, you know, that's what Foss Talk Live is. It's, the, it's nice for us to see the audience and the audience to see us for once in the year. Yeah, I'm with you, Graham, I think. And, and if people are doing talks with presentations um, and slide decks and all that kind of thing, then it's so much easier to have a video feed set up and screen share and to do that with in the first place than it is to have an audio only feed. Right. 
But let me counter that with, if this is an audio-only event, then you can't have any fucking slides. You've got to do it all with your mics and soundboards and whatever. You've got to do it as audio shows. And it's got to be good enough to keep people's attention. A fucking jar full of rice, maracas. uh... Yeah, coconut split in half. (laughs) All of that, yeah. What I'm saying here is that we should get a bunch of audio podcasts to do live shows as audio shows because that would be easier we can do it much more easily with free software only there'll be far fewer fuck-ups and like oh my camera's not working can you hear me and it just cuts out a big chunk of potential issues but pictures it's this new thing it's called a wireless with pictures (laughs) yeah and it makes it different it's not like the podcast that we do every week or every two weeks and you you do have a an emotional connection with somebody's face, you know, when they're talking. And we don't do this video, and I don't think we should, but it makes Foss Talk Live different to everybody else's podcast wrote. They're winning me over, Joe. And maybe people shouldn't have to use video if they don't want to. You know, you and Phelan don't have to. And- well, I don't mind. WinPress sent me a sweet uh, Logitech Brio, so uh, that, that's like 4K and everything, so you can see my tiny cupboard that I do this in. <laughs> I'll set up my camera in front of the synth so I could, you know, just turn around and... Intro music. Yeah. All right, well, that's the debate on that. You you three have... Uh, you haven't convinced me, but you've made sound arguments for video. But let's put that aside for a second. How many shows? It's been four shows traditionally. But if this is online, we could do it for days. We could have every Linux podcast <laughs> under the sun do it for 45 minutes with a, a little break. 12 presenters enter, one presenter leaves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should do, yeah, competition. Because the thing is, this is now open to the world, isn't it? We could have uh, our friends at Jupiter Broadcasting take part and people who couldn't otherwise be there. A podcastathon, so to speak. Yeah. But then will that just get really boring for people or will people dip in and out perhaps? And if you have a set schedule and these shows will be on then, people can turn up to watch their favorite shows and maybe some of the others. Because this is just a totally different thing we're talking about now. It sounds like an administrative nightmare. I think keep it small, keep it focused, keep it tight, keep it easy. Right. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. But then keep it inclusive. Let's have a bunch of other Linux, but there are a lot of Linux podcasts now and open source and related ones. And we could have a ton of shows, but how, how do we then select who's going to be taking part in it? Do we just have the same old shit that we've had every time, but online this time? I think a limited number of additional shows would be good if it's manageable. I don't think it should be open to, I I don't think anyone would have the patience to listen to six or seven shows consecutively mm. and, and it wouldn't really bring anything those things being held on done on the same day right i kind of think if anything it should be shorter so it's an event mm. that has a, a start time and an end time and then it's finished if it drags on for days and days it's kind of irrelevant i think yeah okay well that's certainly good food for thought and uh i'll have to think more about what i want to do because ultimately is down to me if i just don't do anything then nothing will happen and we'll just end up doing what we did last time with fast talk light where it was just like about a week before i tweeted out oh just let's have a get together on mumble and that was actually really good fun quite a few i think like 30 people turned up or something with minimal advertising and plugging of it so if we actually really plugged something we could get potentially quite a lot of people i think for what it's worth that also sounds appealing to me maybe yeah maybe 
And so, yes, dear listener, for once, you can actually take part in this if you're not in the UK or near the UK. So do let us know, latenightlinux.com slash contact, what you think, or contact me directly. What, what should I do with this event? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into your Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies, and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your free Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash latenightlinux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash latenightlinux. Let's do a bit of feedback then. The first one is from Kieran, is that right? That looks Irish to me, Phelan. Kieran, yeah. Okay, yeah. Anyway, he says, I heard you mentioning email hosting was a pain. I would agree. A few months back, I was tasked to run a family mail server. My gut feeling was to turn to Postfix, Dovecot, and AskBoundD, but trying to tie it all together was just a daunting task. Asking around, I came across MailCow. It's an all-in-one solution that is actively maintained, easy to upgrade and run. It does require a fairly current version of both Docker and Docker Compose. However, once those are sorted out, this solution just flies. It runs like a champ on a $5 VPS, though at those specs, MailCow automatically disables solar indexing. It features a web front end, so elders in my family can use it, and to date, months in, we've not had a single spam email land, nor had issues with Gmail. And on a similar note, Patricio said, I use Docker Mail Server. It's one single Docker container that contains everything you would need to run a mail server, including DMARC, DKIM, SPF. It works like a charm. So, yeah, it seems like the modern way to do it is just get a Docker image and it's fine. I'd say, yes, that's fine if you haven't got 10 years of email prior to that and you have to then merge it back in and you may have clients that are customers who are maybe not as clued into things and you'd have to reset their mail up and stuff like that it's like one of those things once you've set it up badly the first time you're stuck with it <laughs> right yeah but i mean the, the only other thing i'd worry about with a, a solution like I, I i've seen i'm not sure if it was mailcow but it was definitely one before that i think it might have been called i read mail like read the color and the problem with those, I find, is the fact that they've done things in their setup, and if they work, they're great, but if they come along and then they suddenly, something stops working, you have to understand that fully, so you have to be prepared to kind of understand it fully, and if you understand it fully, would you not be better off doing it yourself, unless they're doing some magic themselves, which is quite good. Like, there's solutions like Zimbra, and Zimbra is a, like a whole fully featured, essentially, exchange on Linux, essentially. And that is an absolute nightmare if it goes wrong because I've had to deal with clustered Zimbra setups and stuff like that. And they're great when they work, but if anything goes wrong or you're trying to do something fun funky with them, it just it's horrible. You have to know how it all works anyway. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I should really just get my RSPAMD working with my system in all fairness. Yeah, or just push it all through Gmail like I do. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we had some feedback on the Ubiquity 
debacle. Marcus suggested that you get a router that is supported by OpenWRT or OpenWrt, as you call it, Graham. <laughs> um, he says that there's a Linksys one, uh, a WRT nineteen hundred ACS, and he says that that's good hardware, but you, you definitely want to flash it with OpenWRT because the stock firmware is terrible. And he says that as for other Soho devices, which is what that's small office and home office devices. Um, Raspberry Pis with a Z-Wave stick and other integrations like uh, Power of Ethernet, Shields, and stuff like that. And he's used them for cameras. And he says, like, why would you ever trust a security camera from a company when you should build one yourself? And I don't. <laughs> I have a Raspberry Pi 4 with a Pi Camera 2 stuck to it. And that is my security camera. Yeah, or even just a decent webcam or whatever. You can cobble something together. But he says... Uh, He'd like to mention that when you DIY your Soho needs, you automatically avoid any potential problem of company data breaches, mass targeting on vulnerable firmwares when they're discovered, and you can rest a little easier about the existence of backdoors. I don't know whether I'd 100% agree with that. If you have multiple versions of that kit that you have on site and you can swap over to if it breaks, yes. But OpenWRT for me, when I looked at that a few times, like it was a few years ago so, Granted, I've looked at it now and it looks a bit more cleaned up where finding out what version ran with what hardware and, you know, supported gear, whether it fully supported, like there was like differing versions of the firmware that only worked with certain versions of the hardware. I mean, that's the reason why I went with the gear that Will suggested, because I have a fully open uh, PFSense box for the firewall and the wireless access controller sits on an Ubuntu uh, running on a Pi that wireless gear is really good when it works for doing its job. And the fact that you can get multiple of them to, to work in tandem together, like they, they are actually quite good, despite all the other issues they've had. <laughs> yeah. Well, David had various problems, and then he found uh, TP-Link's Omada Enterprise Access Points, which he linked to. And he said, you run local controllers similar to Ubiquiti's cloud key for managing and provisioning access points. Armada touts most of the same features as Ubiquiti, like seamless roaming, automatic provisioning, security features, etc., at a fraction of the cost. So far, I've been extremely happy with the setup, and the Armada controller works perfectly in a Proxmox Lex-C container. And he says, on the security side of things, you only have to connect your local Armada controller to the internet if you want to use their cloud recovery for resetting your local SDN controller's password or manage other Amada remote installation sites. This is easily turned off with a flick of a switch if you never plan on using it. This gives you a completely isolated mesh controller. So that sounds pretty good. I think that's the same as the Ubiquity stuff, though. Is it, though? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you don't. Like, Funny enough, since talking about it, other people have told me, oh, you don't need to have an online account for it. So obviously I flicked something the wrong way, so that's that, my own fault there. Okay, user error, fair enough. All right, Ian says, I have a question for Phelan. Given that the whole KDE project is essentially taking Ubuntu and swapping out the Cs for Ks and including the letter K wherever they can, why or why don't they use the corn shell as default? It seems like a massive oversight, in my opinion. <laughs> Fucking kick ban. <laughs> Trolling bastard. <laughs> Look, there's only one shell, and it's bash. I don't care if it's a old shell, which like the likes of corn and all that crap, or new shells like fish and zedsha. Bash, that's it. You just you're never gonna change it, so just stop. <laughs> I like how you've made 
ZSH into an Irish sounding name like Sersha. <laughs> Sersha. It's got 15 fathers and a J and a Y and a backwards Z. <laughs> That's racism, that is. Well, good trolling, Ian. Well done. Uh, finally, Niklaus says I just listened to the latest Late Night Linux Extra 14 episode. While the interview was fairly good, I consider it a big omission on your part not to talk about forced updates for Snap users, followed by a fucking essay. <laughs> Thank you, Nicholas, for that. Where he basically says that I fucked up by not pressing Popey on the issue of forced updates. Now, Popey has addressed this before, that you can pause updates. But yes, you're right. I probably should have asked him more about that because I don't think it's possible to completely disable updates and or make them only when you want them to be because Nicholas went on about how like he wants to have complete control over his computer and do updates as and when but i mean that's the big one of the big appeals of snaps to developers and iot manufacturers whatever they they know they'll get these automatic updates every six hours or whatever and that is a, a feature that most people want and yeah okay some linux people don't want that but I do. I want everything as up-to-date as possible. And if you don't trust those updates, then what the fuck are you using the software for? But yes, you're right. I should have asked him more about that stuff. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be probably talking about what's been going on in the news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.